Hello and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with Delia Delore, the show that explores the impacts of commonly used phrases on our world's diverse cultures and how people's use of them shape our perspective on the societies we live within. Today's metaphor is, success has many fathers but failure is an orphan, and our guest Robin Hutchinson MBE put a very interesting spin on it that you could interpret either optimistically or cynically, depends on how you view life. Our team, Sam, Sabina, Sean and Honor, really chose great examples, so make sure you stay with us to learn more. While discussing the phrase, it dawned on me that I'd been chanting a similar saying throughout my childhood, and I also recite it as an adult when I'm having fun with my mom. This is what it is. And the cheese stand alone. And the cheese stand alone. (laughs) I know you must be like rolling your eyeballs now, but who remembers that? Come on, you Lucians out there. Don't be shy. One of the many things I love about this show is that I learned so much about things and people that I thought I already knew. I'm sure many film buffs won't know something about director Steven Spielberg that we reveal in today's episode. But first, let's find out where success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan began. There's an old saying that uh, victory has a hundred fathers and defeat is an orphan. That was John F. Kennedy Jr. voicing a variation of today's phrase, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. The origin of this proverb takes an interesting path throughout politics, and Kennedy popularized it. He borrowed it from a diary entry by Count Galeazzuciano, best known as dictator Benito Mussolini's son-in-law. The Count was probably using a local Italian proverb, as a similar version can be traced back to ancient Rome. Historian and politician Tacitus, a man still revered today for his prose, penned the first variation of the saying. Tacitus is known for his factual telling of historical events and insights into the psychology of politics. We still revere him today for noting down facts that were verifiable, for not overly embellishing details like other historians of the time. Um, Shows you, I think, that what Tacitus is giving us is um, a narrative which is uh, very um, rich in the level of detail that it provides, and also a narrative where um, you you get Tacitus really um, drawing attention to how deeply he has been digging. So, um, for example, when he's talking about Tiberius um, at uh, one point, um, he refers to as a source, uh, Agrippina's memoirs. Um, And so Tacitus is trying to I think communicate that he's really um, done his homework. He's he's really researched things as best he can. But what does this phrase really mean? It means many people will seek credit for a success, while very few people wish to take the same responsibility with a failure. No news there, right? No matter how small their contribution was to the win, we often like to be recognized for it. Inventors are no stranger to this phenomenon. Visionaries like Bill Gates are, of course, aided by a team of engineers, experts and lawyers. But even ideas, things that you can't yet touch, are hotly fought over. You may have heard the term patent wars, which has been ravaging the tech industry in recent years. Here, big name brands lay claim to as many fresh ideas they can possibly get their hands on. They do this to hinder the competition and protect future interests. 
The most famous battles have been between Samsung and Apple with their phone and tablet technologies. When creating products like these, hundreds of ideas and innovations are built into it. Just think about the amount of things your phone can do, along with the way it's constructed. In 2013 alone, Apple applied for 647 patents, while Samsung applied for just over 2,000. This makes it near impossible to know what has been claimed and by who. Smaller companies have been greatly dissuaded from inventing further mobile technologies due to fears of extortionate expenses and litigation fees. And that's quite understandable. Patents, they were meant to create incentive for people to invest their own time and money into research and development. The encouragement for innovation would thus come from the profits of their hard work. However, more and more is being spent on patent purchases and lawsuits instead of advancement. Big companies are making large patent purchases like Google buying Motorola and its 17,000 plus mobile related patents or Facebook buying $550 million worth of patents from Microsoft to bolster its legal battle with Yahoo. Well, these patent wars have become big business. Patent trolls, a term referring to a person or a company who buys and enforces patents aggressively or opportunistically, have generated massive profits. In many cases, the companies being sued cannot afford the legal costs, so they settle or go out of business. Well, some say the real victims in these wars are startup companies and entrepreneurs. Patent wars have waged long before Apple or Samsung ever existed. Notable inventor Thomas Edison was involved in his fair share of them, including with his most famous gadget, the carbon filament light bulb. In his lifetime, Edison filled over 1,000 patents with a handful dedicated to his light. He was a master at protecting his creations, covering his back until he perfected the optimal design. His final invention definitely did infringe upon his other patents. However, unable and unwilling to sue himself, but of course, this didn't matter. Yet, this didn't stop him from battling against others if they dared to step on his toes. With these early but lasting inventions, it's hard to pinpoint a single maker as many individuals raced to reach the finish line. Things like the television, the airplane, and even the sewing machine saw similar feuds too. All right, we all know the Wright brothers as pioneers of aviation, right? Did they actually hold a patent on the airplane? The Wrights did have a patent, though it wasn't on the airplane per se. Instead, it was on their method of controlling the airplane in turns. They had developed this concept of wing warping, where they would twist the wings, and that allowed the plane to steer through the air. The Wrights' biggest adversary in the patent fight was a man named Glenn Curtis. He had used something called aerialons, which are separate from the wing warping technique. On the Wright brothers' planes, Glenn Curtis used a smaller portion of the wing, just a small flap that would then bend to cause it to turn. The Wright brothers sued Curtis in 1909, claiming his aileron idea infringed on their patent. The battle lasted eight grueling years, but was never truly resolved due to World War I. In desperate need of aircraft, the U.S. government forced airplane manufacturers to share patents and pay royalties. After the war ended in 1918, the litigation was never renewed. Kennedy, who you heard at the beginning of this segment, is an example of failure being an orphan. In the snippet, he addressed his public in regards to the recent Bay of Pigs invasion, which had gone horribly wrong. 
JFK, unable to shirk the responsibility, admitted to foreign involvement in Cuban politics. The original plan was to enter the island discreetly, contracting Cuban exiles to enact the invasion itself. However, the disastrous move ended up solidifying Fidel Castro's place in power and led to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Here we have a Cuban soldier describing his experiences at the time. The worst type of war you can have when you fight against your own people. And these were Cuban, misinformed, misdirected, but that history has shown that they were wrong. I get to the United States uh, with the, uh, always the intention of going back uh, to liberate my country. The best uh, alternative was joining the, the Brigada 2506. We landed in Cuba on the 17th of April. We fought there until we ran out of ammunition and we have to retreat. It's important is that the brigade never surrendered. We will never surrender. We were captured as prisoners of war, but we never raised a white flag for Castro regime. Wednesday, April 19th, resistance ends. All those who are not killed are taken prisoners. Another interesting take on this proverb is that it can be easy to find support when things are going well. People love to flock around us as we flaunt our successes, and they love to join us in those celebrations. But really, it's when we reach our worst that we really need their support. Solidifying relationships when we are at our peak is important, just in case we fall to our lowest. It's no secret that networking is a valuable tool, and today's proverb highlights this. Here's a snippet from the first ever Harry Potter film. The original series celebrates friends triumphing over evil together, but still manages to appreciate the bravery of those who swim against the tide. Listen to those cheers. Yes, yes, well done, Slytherin, well done, Slytherin, however... Recent events must be taken into account. And I have a few last-minute points to award. To Miss Hermione Granger, with the cool use of intellect, while others were in grave peril, 50 points. Second, to Mr. Ronald Weasley for the best played game of chess that Hogwarts has seen these many years. 50 points. And third, to Mr. Harry Potter for pure nerve and outstanding courage. I award Gryffindor House 60 points. We're tied with Slytherin. And finally, it takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to your enemies, but a great deal more to stand up to your friends. I award 10 points to Neville Longbottom. <laughs> Thank you.
Robert Hutchinson, MBE, has many roles within the arts and the community. He is a director of the Community Brain, chair at Creative Youth, IYAF, founding trustee of the Roast Theatre Kingston, host of Half Hour with Hutch, and frontman of a band. Robin was also the former Labour Group leader on Kingston Council and established the Douglas Centre Arts Space in Surbiton, now the Corner House. This space has encouraged many young people to experience and engage with the arts for the first time and Robin continues to be involved in creating a large number of site-specific projects. Robin, thank you so much for joining us on Metaphorically Speaking. Now, the quote that we're going to be discussing today, we have changed a word simply because from your account, it seems that you prefer to change this word. So let's see how we get on with it and to see if there are any comparisons as to what, you, what we've changed it to, um, to the actual quote. So the metaphor is success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. So you want to replace it, the word fathers, with parents. Why? Um, at some point in the past, obviously, subconsciously, I've changed that for myself without too much thought. However, um, I would stick with parents. And I do that because First of all, obviously, um, father uh, immediately implies a masculine approach, which I'm not altogether happy with. Uh, and it feels to me that in, you know, the, the uh, similarly with a village, everybody is a parent. Uh, I mean, my view is with ideas, everybody has that role of being a parent. Um, and so to me, it's always felt... Um, and as I say, it's just the way I've always said it. Success has many parents. Failure is an orphan. Um, just feels more reflective of how I am. Fair enough. In light of current circumstances, what changes have you noticed within your community? Do you think that these changes will be long lasting? Um, I think we've seen some remarkable things. I mean, we are we are working on the premise that the future hopefully will be more local, more mutual and more sustainable. And I think what we witnessed in the very early days of COVID-1, uh, as best one can describe it, was that people responded by and large in an extraordinarily generous hearted way. People who historically have been engaged with community activity, and we've got a lot of people who are like that, were ready and prepared to do things. But I think what was wonderful was the way in which others immediately stepped to the fore. And so you've got those WhatsApp street groups, you've got people looking at food banks, you look, you've got people looking at who was in need. There was a genuine sense of the community wanting to respond to a crisis. And I think what was interesting was the way in which perhaps the organisations were slower to be able to, be res to, to respond because of the nature of the processes and the systems that they have. So in a way, it became people that were running and the organisations were slowly catch catch catching up with it. 
what then happened was that actually a lot of those organizations had to change the way they worked they couldn't go through the same strict processes and boundaries we do this you do that everybody said you know i mean in the same way that if somebody collapsed on the street um you know people don't stand around in a circle saying uh, excuse me who's the best qualified to people just try to help and that's what happened and, and so organizations had to remove artificial boundaries sometimes pool budgets sometimes let go of their preciousness um and so we saw some really great things and great initiatives happening and and to a certain extent i think you can break them down into what was done because the government told us to do things what was done because our local authorities or other agencies were told us to do things and what was done because people felt it was right and i think we'll find that there was an enormous amount of stuff that was done because people felt it was right for whatever reason within themselves be it morality decency or whatever you want to call it and so in terms of what we've witnessed i think we've seen some wonderful things I only hope that we can keep those things going, that our future is built upon foundations of love and care and compassion and consideration and empathy and a greater understanding of other people's lives. Because if COVID has done anything, it's shone a spotlight on inequalities. And it's also shown how wafer thin our comfort is. I mean, there are undoubtedly people with millions who will not see this as a major issue, but for the vast majority of people, this has put vulnerability into their lives. And I really hope that as we emerge into what I hope will be a different landscape, we won't forget how important it is to reach out to others, to support them. And, you know, I mean, in our language, we talk about creating playgrounds for adults when somebody falls over being there to pick them up and not laugh but merely say what did you fall over what can we do to help and take it out of your way mm -hmm. let's expand a bit on the brief introduction that i would have given to you what would you say to listeners in terms of what you have been doing and the role you have been playing within the community that you just spoke of well, we've been doing stuff for years and in a way, as somebody said, it's as if you were preparing for COVID. Um, we haven't been, but what we have been all the time working for is giving people the opportunity to have more control in their own life. We've got a saying, which is everybody's brilliant if they're given the help and support to be brilliant. And too much of our life is actually teaching us what we're not good at rather than what we are, might be good at and telling us what we can't do rather than what we could do. So we've been creating places like the Museum of Futures in Surbiton and the Community Kitchen there and the Farm of Futures in Tolworth and now Baking Ideas in Tolworth as well. And these are spaces where people can find their passions again and their interests and the things that they want to pursue, hopefully in groups and sharing and doing it in that way so what we did because we organized a lot of events and other things as soon as um uh, covid started we we launched an online place called the grand hall because we thought there were going to be people who were suddenly lost a bit lonely where could they go so we created the grand hall so a virtual space into which people could pop in at any point during the day there might be somebody there they might not they could have conversation they suddenly wouldn't feel lonely and we found interestingly early on that was being very heavily used and a lot of people were using it almost just as background noise working but having that sound that there are other people about so you're not isolated and then we created a side room in which people could book that to organize events and to do things so that was the real first step out was just trying to make 
people realised that at a time when the world suddenly felt very, very different, that they weren't alone. And we did a lot of messaging. I mean, I started to think or half hour with Hutch, which was a piece of nonsense, really. It just basically said at 12 noon on Facebook Live, I'd waffle, drivel for half an hour. <laughs> the early part of it was about, because I'm bipolar, um, how you can recognise and deal with depression, um, how you can work effectively from home, because a lot of people were doing that for the very first time. Um, and what are the warning signs around anxiety and panic attacks and all the other things that we're visiting? You know, I mean, we know from a study in Nottingham that the number of people registering for mental health support has rocketed. But what's worrying is the vast majority of those new inquiries have never shown any previous mental health issues. So what's obviously happened is this has strained people. And, you know, that's no surprise, but I think it's a surprise to a lot of people who fundamentally thought of themselves as strong and then suddenly realise, actually, no, wait a minute, I am, you know, I am quite vulnerable. I can relate to that. I really, yeah. I understand what you're saying. And in a way, you're in self, you're, you're in denial because you don't think, no, that can't be me. Yeah. You know? Yes, I can relate to that. And I think there's been a really interesting thing because within the messaging around COVID, there was a real sense of if we could get to September, everything was going to be all right. Mm -hmm. And we know lots of people, both in their own, you know, their personal life, but also in their business life, who were hanging on by their fingernails to get to September. And then the announcement came that went, it's going to be another six months. Um, and I have to say, I'm a bear of very little brain. And, and my head had gone, OK, six months, Christmas, until my wife said, it's March, Robin. And I went, oh, blimey, March. And I could feel myself go into, can we hold on another six months? This second lockdown has created a really interesting challenge. And I see it in, again, the people who traditionally you would see as strong and resolute and robust being very um, wobbly. And you know, the important thing is how we remember this time, because in the end of it, as we, you know, as we emerge and we go into the new world, how we deal with these emotions and mental states will either be something that we can utilize as a, 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 again, or if we try and bury it, it will emerge again and it'll emerge at the wrong time. So I think a lot of people are finding the tools to face up to the fact that the image they've presented of themselves perhaps has little chips in it. But Robin, how can someone recognize those signs, those symptoms that COVID is changing their, maybe their personality is affecting their emotions. What are the signs? Well, they come from very different ways. And I think, you know, I mean, and that's part of what we do when we do the whole talking bit is trying to identify those things. So it might be slight change in your sleeping pattern. It might be the anxiety levels of feeling that you're hyperventilating, that you suddenly can't cope with things, things that you'd normally do very easily. I must get up and do the, do put some washing on. I can't face putting the washing on. You know, a classic example for somebody in a depression is that they want to either sleep during the day or they don't want to sleep at all. They're likely to take to um, perhaps alcohol to uh, attempt to uh, mitigate it. 
Um, there'll be a sense of uselessness that they can't do anything, which is clearly and palpably not true, but it can overwhelm you. It's that feeling of loss of control, I think, is the bit where it begins to signal. And of course, we're living in a world at the moment where our, our social media and other news feeds amplifies the sense of a world in turmoil over which we have little to no control whatsoever. So even the simplest things of stopping to breathe slowly, to modify your breathing, to listen to music, to do some simple tasks, instead of looking at all the things you haven't done, do something very simple and basic and just build your confidence back. There is nothing wrong in being low. There is nothing wrong in being anxious. There's nothing wrong in being there. You are not the weaker, the worse for it. It's just another part of the human state. Have you always been this way, i.e. thoughtful about others, how they feel, or has COVID brought that out of you? No, I think and I, my brother and I talk about what happened in our family, what was the freak in our family, because we, I think, both have been at one level empathetic and understanding you know another i'm an incredibly selfish person i uh, you know within us is always the battle between selfless and selfish you know in the early days of the first lockdown when suddenly the shells were stripped of um toilet rolls for example now some people were buying because they might never get to the shop again or for others but for a lot of people that was a panic reaction and people became very judgmental oh, it's all of those people taking all of those well actually that battle exists within us the self versus selfish i mean i'm reminded of that and i'll get it wrong but that uh, native american thing of the two wolves that exist within one and in the end of it it's which do you feed uh, and to a certain extent that's where we've all got to be careful because we can feed the anxiety that will lead to behaving selfishly or we can try and feed the other side which will hopefully lead to us behaving in a slightly selfless way but it, my sort of life has been primarily around ideas and trying to make things happen and that's why that saying success has many parents and failure is an orphan is so real to me because when I first, as a young person, heard it, I misunderstood it completely. I thought it was, um, if you have a really great idea, every other person will go, oh, yeah, I had that as well. And it took me an age to realise, no, it's not that, Robin. It's actually nothing really great happens unless other people are part of it. And the truth is, it'll never happen until they believe it's their idea. You know, all the great things that have happened in my life is because people have been prepared to go, yep, we're in, we'll do this. Um, and, and from that, I, I get real joy. And so actually, am I selfless? Am I, you know, thinking of others? No, you could cast it. I'm actually a really selfish person who just wants to do what he wants to do and is lucky enough to be able to do it. And therefore I get great self joy from the fact that we've been able to build theatres and create events and do stuff, um, of which I've been a tiny part. Mm. And uh, out of all these projects, do you have a couple that you feel these were my greatest successes? It didn't, I didn't yeah. plan it to be so huge, but here it is. And what did you learn from it? Uh, it's interesting, that dealer, because I never think in terms of success for myself. And I, that's not sort of me being humble or anything. It's just, it's not how I see things. So 
I, you know, I, I've thought about it. Um, and I've always said to people, live gravestone moments. Do something that if that was the last thing you did and it put it on your gravestone, you'd go, yeah, I'll be proud enough with that. For me, it's always what's the next thing. It's never what's happened. So I tend not to reflect and look back on things. But if I did have to say what what I'd mark as the greatest success for my life, it is being with my wife, who has absolutely helped me to understand myself, helped me to cope with my frailty, been the most generous and kind and loving person I could ever be with and tolerates the most enormous amount. Um, so that's the only thing that I'd almost say is a success. And again, of that success, I'd put 98% of it's down to her. No, that's, that's huge. Um, that's huge. It makes me think of relationships that are now being put to it their limits within the COVID restrictions and the quarantines. Yeah. And it makes me think of maybe opportunities for others if they are so inclined to be mentally strong, I suppose, to make decisions that yeah. will help them to come out of it. Now, your platform is there a way if someone wanted to that they could uh, log into your stream and, and listen to, to what you have to say on a subject like this or be part of a, a conversation, a confidential conversation in terms um, of how they can make life better for them within relationships? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that, you know, truthfully, I'm not sure I'm the counsellor or person to, but I think you are absolutely right that there will be a lot of people that through lockdown, et cetera, it has put extra strain on relationships that perhaps could cope at one level. And this has put fissures and fractions into it. And then there'll be people who've been unhappy for years and won't know how to deal with it. And I think you are right that um, it's probably making a lot of people ask a lot of serious questions about how they want to live. Um, and I think that's happening not just about relationships. I think it's happening around people's work. Do I want to continue commuting? Do I want to have more control? You know, perhaps, and we know it, you know, they've worked in an environment where the management has said you can't work from home. Uh, it's impossible to work from home. And then suddenly, of course, it was possible and they're doing it. Well, will they ever want to go back into the? So I think this is a time. I mean, they say most people sort of look for a new job when they're on holiday and that Christmas is a great time. You know, it's in these moments of pause where people begin to reflect on whether. Who's running their life? And that's, again, what a lot of our work is about is. Have you accidentally found yourself in a position where it's somebody else who's telling your story rather than you? Yeah, we get a lot of people coming into the Museum and Futures and Community Kitchen with new business ideas, things that they want to try out. Uh, the good news is a lot of them fail. Now, that might seem a strange thing to say, but of course, actually, they learn through the failure and more often than not, they come back with the better ideas. But the one thing is certain, not one of them will go to the grave saying, I wish I'd. And I think that's the most 
what a powerful thing isn't it if you go through your life mm. with i wish then and so you know when we talk about playgrounds for there's a wonderful talk by a bloke called Sir Ken Robinson on TEDx, which is effectively how we educate creativity out of children. If you haven't seen it, look, it, it's just fantastic. And we then go on to say, as well as educating creativity out of children, we de-skill adults at work. We actually overmanage people. And we, you know, I just find it utterly fascinating that you've got something as brilliant a resource as a person and then you restrict what they can do. And so when we create our playgrounds, all of these people come to get involved in whatever way it is. And some want to do their job, but in a way they're not allowed to do it in the work environment. And others want to get away from it completely and do something completely different. So when we talk of playgrounds, it is. There's a point in your childhood when you were in a playground let us say and you put your coat on your head and you believed you could fly and we go you can it's just not physically but you can fly in your head and you can fly with your ideas and if we can make these safe places you could do and the number of people who come up to us and say do you know what I've always wanted to do and the answer is invariably no and they go I've always wanted to do this and you go well you should and they go oh thank you what have we done that means people need permission to do what it is they want to do. Something's gone very strange. Mm. Now, you mentioned earlier on Half Hour with Hutch, some of the subjects you spoke or you speak about. What subjects or areas do you get people questioning, you know, sending you feedback? What, what, have, what is it that maybe you've, you've spoken about that people can give further or additional comments. Sure. I mean, I, it, I have to say, you know, we're, I think today was the 121st edition of it. So that's a, you know, that's a lot. And when it started off, I'd put it down as it was kind of quite um, structured, sensible. It's got more and more surreal. It's really me just narrating absurdities, but it will touch every summer off and on pain and it will touch on fragility and it will touch on mental health and it will touch on uh emotion and those draw you know and quite often i it'll i'll do it because i've found somewhere you can port, point people to like the happiness project or something around um depression and i, I you know i see this as nothing more in a way than a guide you know we this is not an answer but it's a safe environment for the question and then hopefully the opportunity to encourage people to find that space. And some of the people who come on then offer things that they're doing to say, I'm doing this, maybe this would help, or I am running a session, maybe you should come to this. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of sort of referral and self-help that's going on, but I'm not sure necessarily that people would be joining if they felt it was being worthy. I think people are joining for half hour a day where they can just switch their head off and go, I don't understand half of this. It seems like stupidity. Why the heck are we talking about um, 1970s detectives as though they were glove you know, puppets? It's just, but I, what I'm very aware of is the number of people who are just thanking because for half an hour, they perhaps could forget the situation they were in. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. And how can listeners 
find out uh, about your half hour with Hutch and all the other projects that you're involved in? Sure. So the, the best way to find out the vote, most of it is to go to the communitybrain.org, the website, the communitybrain.org, and that has links to a number of the projects, or you can just send an email via that. And um, the Half Hour with Hutch is on Facebook Live from Monday to Fridays at 12 noon uh, under my uh, profile. I think it's still Robin Hutchinson, but it might be homage to fromage. I never know. Okay. Well, Robin, thank you so much for your time. And I've actually relaxed talking to you about it because I'm one of those people who felt very affected right at the beginning with COVID. And I didn't know what it was. You know, all of a sudden I was just thinking, why am I worried? Why am I overthinking? I was yeah. being more analytical than ever before. And it wasn't like me. And I'm thinking, why? I was so kind of, everything was a, a problem. Yeah. Was causing, as they say, a mountain out of a molehill. And I just, I didn't even recognize myself uh, and started to get headaches. And then when I went to the doctor, he said, you're suffering with anxiety. I'm like, no, no, yeah. no, 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 I'm not. And then he said, just do some breathing exercises, which was really good. And I realized it was the news, you know, yeah. constantly listening to the news. So now I don't listen to the news as, as much as I used to. Of course, yeah. I care about what's going on in the world. I need to, I need to know what's going on. I care, but I really can't make a change apart from doing what I'm told to. Safe yeah. distancing, wash my hands, wear my mask. That's the way that I can help and turn that anxiety around and feel more within myself. I think that's really interesting because there you are clearly a very competent, very bright, very capable person, probably quite driven. And suddenly all the rules you'd learned were taken away and you don't know the game you're playing anymore, which makes you feel lost, which builds up anxiety. But your training has been told has told you you should be able to cope yes. and therefore you punish yourself even more. Yes, yes. And I think what I learned from that as well is to trust the words of people who are professional in what they do. And yeah. um, as much as I know myself uh, in terms of my character and as you say, my drive, I also trust my doctor. So if my doctor says that to me, even though it sounds far-fetched, he's yeah. a professional. He has seen this many times before. And it doesn't mean because I'm strong and all those qualities that I pride myself on being, it doesn't mean that I'm always going to be that way. There's going to be a moment of weakness, which yeah. I can, if I acknowledge and accept, I can change it into a positive. I can yeah. learn to live with it. I can learn to change it. And I can learn to share it with others. Absolutely. So, Thank you so much for your time. A pleasure. And, uh, well, I'm, I'll ensure that I check you out online. And of course, I'll be listening to Half Hour with her. Nice to chat with you. Take care. Thank you. Here's another way to look at our metaphor. Success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. I'm Spartacus! 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 Sometimes taking credit for someone else's work is actually a good thing, 
especially if it prevents your friend from being captured by some terrible Romans. However, is that what this week's metaphor actually means? As Robin touched on in our interview, there are two ways to interpret our metaphor, either optimistically or cynically. Let's start with a cynical interpretation, just because I prefer to finish on a high note. Success has many parents, but failure is an orphan. Or it can be thought of in this way. Success attracts leeches who will claim they inspired you or aided you, whilst failure will result in being shunned like a leper. I'm slightly exaggerating the quote to prove my point, but there's still truth in it. The idea that success attracts people like a swarm of flies to a jam sandwich and failure scares them off like a rolled up newspaper. A good example in recent history would be how ex-president Trump was treated after losing the election. Fair and square, I'd like to add. Before the election, Trump had many supporters in powerful and influential positions. As the Biden votes came flooding in, those so-called allies turned their back or even stuck knives into Trump's to revoke any association with the now ex-president and his failure. All this talk of failure may make you feel a bit hopeless, but what if I told you that one of the greatest and most dedicated athletes of all time considered himself to be a failure at various points in his career? I've missed more than nine thousand shots in my career. I've lost almost three hundred games. Twenty-six times. I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. Of course, that was former professional basketball player Michael Jordan. Failures are like full stops. They mark the end of an idea, a career, or a sentence. But as any avid reader will tell you, after one sentence comes another and another. Sometimes we just choose the wrong path, like Steven Spielberg. Before making summer blockbusters and becoming one of the most influential directors of all time, Spielberg received poor grades at school and was rejected three times from the University of Southern California. Instead, he was eventually accepted into California State University, where he made a student film, was scouted by Universal Studios, and promptly jumped out of university. Now he is a household name and one of the most thanked people in acceptance speeches, a father of many successes. If you contributed to a project, it is nice to receive some credit, but I would not advise you to go around demanding praise. As karma teaches us, whatever you put into the universe will come back to you. I never believed in karma until it happened to me, and the person—they really got it back good.、Hmm. Now, okay, here is the optimistic interpretation: success comes from listening to guidance and accepting support. Whilst failure is more likely when taking on all the responsibility and never asking for help, thinking of it like this shows how our metaphor can enforce the importance of mentorship. It could be in your education, workplace, or in your personal life. Have you ever reflected on the successes in your life and wondered who may have been there to help you along the way? Sometimes I think we feel we reach our victories alone, but if we think really hard, we probably find that there was someone there pushing us along the way. Mentoring is so important because of the impact it can have on an individual's life, but also your own. In fact, studies out of Johns Hopkins suggest that when adults mentor young people, the ability, there's an effect on the ability 
to prevent and delay declining brain function. There's something about mentoring that just makes you feel good. Now you can be an intentional mentor, meaning that you seek out opportunities to help others grow, or perhaps you fall into the unintentional mentoring category, being a mentor and not even knowing it. I've had many mentors in my life, both professionally and personally, mostly intentional, others not. But think about that. Have you ever mentored someone and not even realized it? Maybe you were advising or leading by example, and you never saw the results of that mentoring. That was Laurie Hunt giving a TED CCS talk. Just as a quick side note, although we have established that failure is an orphan, I by no means want anyone to think that I am saying that orphans are failures. In fact, some of the most inspirational and successful people grew up without parents. Remember Malcolm X, Marilyn Monroe, John Lennon, Jamie Foxx, Francis McDormand and Alexander Hamilton. And I'm sure many comic book fans out there will be citing the many superheroes who tragically lost their families before being able to save the world countless times over. Another great example is one of our guests, Marsha Powell of Believe. When her mom passed away, she felt so lonely. She started a foundation that has helped many young women. And you can listen to her interview in our podcast. We should live our lives inspiring others and leading by example. Find good qualities in others and pass down those values to inspire a greater generation. So whatever your family history, learn from your mistakes, accept helping hands, pass on your wisdom to those who listen. One day, you will be the proud parent of many successes. I told you we'd look at our phrase, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan and provide many ways of thinking about it. And I hope you agree. This episode was hosted by Delia Delore and had segments written by Sabina Laucopra Garcia and Sean McAladdin. Script supervisors on a web. Thanks for listening to Metaphorically Speaking, created by Delia Delore Productions, with original distribution by Colourful Radio. This episode was hosted by Delia Delore and had segments written by Sabina Laucopra Garcia and Sean McAladdin. Script supervisor is on a web. The show was produced by Sam Colwood with production assistant from Ojua Akasveni. The program was edited by Reese Bridge Robinson and animation and promotional edited by Ernest Deneve.